Amen. And as you're getting seated there, pull out your Bible as we always do here. We love the Word of God at River West Church, and we're going to open it every Sunday together and study it and chew on it and savor on it. It's an amazing thing. What a privilege to be together. Amen, church. What a joy to be together. Open to Luke 20. While you're turning there, let me speak to uh, the change we made this week in our, our uh, services. You noticed we're, we're no longer doing the reservations thing. I want to just tell you a couple things about that. Um, so we've not been required, actually, to take reservations for several months now. We continued that as a, as a gesture of just wanting to... Um, protect and, and be wise, but uh, the reservation system started to get bogged down and it was not using the space well in here, but I want to just say that we're continuing to honor one another through physical distancing and masks, and so please just you know be sensitive to your neighbors as you come in here. We want to reassure you, those who are online, you will feel comfortable here. We'd love to have you, and so thank you for loving your neighbors like that as you, as you sit, keeping a couple chairs between you and other family units. And uh, this morning we go to chapter 20, Luke 20, verse 27. And what Luke's going to do in our study this morning, he's going to show us yet another conflict story. Okay, the third of three conflict stories in Luke chapter 20 alone, where yet again we're going to find some opponents of Jesus, people who have a problem with Jesus, and they come seeking to trap him and trick him and discredit him publicly. It just seems like everybody in Jerusalem has a problem with Jesus, doesn't it? Just seems like everybody's got a problem with Jesus. Some things never change, right? Especially the who's who in Jerusalem, the elites, they've all got a problem. They're literally lined up, okay? This is like the DMV. You've got a problem with Jesus too? Okay, take a number, get in line, and that's what's happening. Um, I wanted to share with you a quote that Pastor Mike shared with me this week. Pastor Mike is our pastor of amazing quotes. And he shared with me this great quote. I know you'll love this from Winston Churchill. He shared this last week with the family service. There it is. You have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. Isn't that a good quote? Not a good quote. I like that. But I do want to say that quote should probably be tweaked just a little bit. It's not exactly perfect, actually, because if you're like me, you can think of some people in our world who have enemies because they've stood up for things that are really dumb, okay, right? So it's not, that's not exactly precise enough. And so I imagined what it would be like if Jesus took this quote and sort of tweaked it and made it his own. And there's lots of things we could say there. Jesus might say something like, you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for the truth of God. You have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for the heart of God in this world. You've stood against the things that God is against. That'll get you some enemies. You have enemies? Good. That means you pose a threat for some reason to the illegitimate claims to authority in the spiritual realm that are a part of our world here. Amen? Please say amen to that. That's what's happening to Jesus. Why is it that people are lining up to take swings at Jesus? Because he poses a threat to illegitimate claims to authority. Have you ever 
found it odd in our Western culture that all of the guns are pointed at the carpenter from Nazareth. Why is that? Find me a religion, find me a religious leader who garners as much ire and a sense of being threatened as Jesus of Nazareth, especially among the elites. Why is that? And what we're going to discover this morning is the Sadducees have been waiting patiently for their turn to take a swing (laughs) at Jesus. And here's what happens. Luke 20, verse 27 There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man, that is the brother, the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now, you might be thinking, is that in the Bible? (laughs) That sounds weird. Okay, that's that's actually in the Bible, Deuteronomy 25, and it's it's what is referred to as leveret marriage. The word leveret is the Latin word for brother-in-law, and basically it was a law that said that if, if if a wife, if her husband dies and she's left childless, one of her husband's unmarried brothers should step in and marry her and ideally create progeny. And that sounds a little odd to our modern sensibilities, but a couple things to know about this. First of all, this was meant to protect widows. This, this was a culture where a widow with no husband and no heirs would often be left to beg for her well-being. So this actually was really good for widowed women, and it also served to protect the family line, the family name. And what the Sadducees do in this moment is they come to Jesus, and they say, we're going to pose now a little riddle, a little question using this leveret marriage concept. Here's what they say next. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second And the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. It's almost like a little parable, okay? A little riddle that they pose using this thing from Deuteronomy 25. But notice again, I want you to notice something. This little riddle, this question, is not being presented to Jesus as genuine inquiry, okay? They do not actually care what Jesus will respond. In fact, the whole purpose of this riddle is to trick him, to trap him. It's not genuine. And it's a pattern all the way through 20. Have you noticed? Going back to the beginning, the question about authority, they tried to trick him. Then last Sunday, Marianne talked about the denarius, the coin. They were trying to trick Jesus. This is the pattern over and over, trying to trick Jesus. We don't know much about the Sadducees, and Luke isn't interested in telling us a lot of details, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but there's a couple things you need to know. The first thing you need to know is that they were one of the religious sects, kind of like the Pharisees, but different, they were, they were elite, they were probably affluent, they were highly educated, they were rationalistic, meaning they were sort of materialists, and most importantly, and this is what Luke tells us, 
They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. So the goal of this riddle is to make the resurrection look silly. That's all they're doing. They're like, let's make the resurrection look as silly as we possibly can. Because there's a, for, they think they've put Jesus in an impossible situation. They're like, Jesus, either she's not married to any of them or she's married to all of them, okay? So you either denounce marriage or you promote polygamy and they think Jesus is trapped, right? And again, they don't even care about the reality of the resurrection. Their whole goal is to make it look silly. And here's the thing, my friends, the reader should be asking the question, why is Luke repeating this kind of theme? over and over. People who come to Jesus, they're threatened by Jesus, they oppose Jesus, and what do they do? They try to trick him. They try to trap him. They try to set him up. They try to humiliate him. Why the repetition of this pattern? I'll tell you something, as a pastor, I'm really thankful that Luke is driving this home because this, my friends, is a little tiny window into the default condition of the human heart towards Jesus. It's just a little window. It's almost universal. To be opposed to Jesus. And and what do you do? You keep the focus on diversions. Anything to take the focus off the real issue. Let's quibble about coins. Let's quibble about riddles. Let's quibble about philosophical conundrums. Anything I can do to keep the conversation off the real issue, which is if I acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, I subsequently have to acknowledge that I am not. And how does Jesus respond? Let's keep reading. We left off at verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. This is the burning bush moment where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. I'm just gonna stop there in a moment. We'll read the last two verses, but that's plenty. Okay, there is so much going on right there. This is extremely complex, very intricate argument that Jesus is making. And let me make it simple for you. I'm going to break this down into two pieces, okay? I'm going to put this on the screen for all of you visual learners. Here's what Jesus does. He responds to the Sadducees using two stages, two steps in his argument, okay? Step number one, he exposes the flaw in their premise. That's verses 34 to 36. You know what I mean by that? The flaw in their premise? Basically, Jesus says, you fail to understand the very doctrine that you claim to be rejecting. You have a premise problem, and he's going to expose it. Step two, he exposes the flaw in their vision of God. In their basic understanding of who God is, the nature of God, the character of God. 
And what I'm going to suggest this morning is that most of the time when people are struggling with Jesus, wrestling with Jesus, their struggle ultimately boils down to one of these two problems. So we have so much to learn from this passage. So let's take a look at each. Number one, Jesus says, I need to point out something. You have misunderstood the very doctrine you claim to be rejecting. See, you've assumed, here's what you've done, Sadducees. You, you, you're making fun of the resurrection, but the problem is you've assumed that the, the, the age to come, the resurrected life will basically be exactly like this life, except it will stretch on for a really long time. <laughs> and everything about it will be essentially the same. But that premise, you're already on the wrong starting point. So you're making fun of something, you're ridiculing something, you're, you think you're destroying something that I don't even agree with. In the discipline of logic, we call this the straw men argument. Any of you who've studied philosophy, you know this is the straw man argument is you lift up a distortion of your opponent's view, something that's slightly silly, and you knock down the straw man and you say, I won the debate. And your opponent is saying, you, you defeated an idea that I don't even hold. And let me tell you something, friends, this actually happens a lot more than we realize. I mean, this happens all the time. Often when people are struggling with, or even rejecting Jesus, or they think they're rejecting Jesus, what they're actually rejecting is a distortion. Did you know that? Because we know that if a person got exposed to the true and living Christ, how could they possibly reject him? He's so beautiful. He's so glorious. He's so majestic. I think I can illustrate this with the story of Rhett McLaughlin and Link Neal. These might be names you've never heard of, but maybe some of you, all of your grandkids and children and anyone under the age of 30 knows them as Rhett and Link, all right? These are really famous YouTubers. I won't even ask for a show of hands if you understand or know who these people are, all right? But the young people are going, come on, get with it. Okay, Rhett and Link, these are like YouTube sensations, all right? These, these guys are super famous and they've made a name for themselves through this kind of YouTube channel called, called Good Mythical Morning. And it's just silly, all right? They basically go online and they do all kinds of crazy, hilarious, satirical songs and they engage in zany stunts. They duct tape themselves together and they play wedgie hangman and they put glow sticks in meat grinders and they blindfold each other and do canned meat taste tests. All right, it's highly cultured entertainment, okay? And these, these guys have become millionaires they're super famous, but here's the thing. Both of them were on campus crusade staff. They were crew members. They were missionaries, and they were really devout Christians until about one year ago, one year ago, February, they both went on YouTube, and they recorded their deconversion, deconstruction stories where they basically went online and said, we are no longer Christians. And they sort of laughed at Christianity. And then they told this whole, almost like the way Christians tell a conversion testimony, they told a deconversion testimony. And here's the thing, this sent shockwaves through their fans, through lots of young, this was really rattling for a lot of young people. 
And it's become sort of a pattern in our culture. I mean, I can, you know, Jen Hatmaker, Rob Bell, uh, there's just person after person is starting to do this. It's kind of a, a popular thing to do. You're, you, you tell your deconversion story. But here's the thing. Uh, Christian philosophers have noticed a common theme. Often in this deconversion, deconstruction story, what the person, you can take that picture down now, thank you. <laughs> it's a little disturbing. Uh, what they're doing is they're actually, they're, they're, they're rejecting a straw man. They lift up a straw man or they lift up a, a version of Christianity that they came out of that was really negative or mean-spirited or fundamentalist. A version of Christianity that you and I would reject. We would say, well, yes, you came out of some kind of a church that was not representing the heart of Jesus. I would have left that church too. And they often lift up doctrines and knock them down and, and their distortions of the doctrine. And what Jesus does, and this is so brilliant, is Jesus says, let me, let me tell you what I'm for. Because what I'm for is so beautiful. Now, we don't necessarily see it when we read this passage, but what Jesus does is he says, the resurrection, the new age, the life to come, my friends, this is beautiful. This is marvelous. This is the source of all of your hope. So can I show you what he says? Jesus says, there's four things you need to know about the resurrected life. Four truths. I'm going to put them up here. These are all coming from verses 35 and 36. So I'm just lifting this out of the Bible, all right? You can look at your own Bible and see every one of these statements. We won't marry anymore. We can't die anymore. We will be equal to angels. And more so, we will be the children of God eternally. And we will get there because God has counted us worthy. Okay. And actually, when you look at verse 36 real quick, there's a, there's a little a logic word there. See that very first word, for? Jesus says, okay, we won't marry anymore. And then he makes a logical step. He says, for, here's why. We cannot die anymore. Jesus is, he's just brilliant. He goes, here's why marriage will not be a part of the new age because death will not be a part of the new age. And the logic goes, if, if, if no one ever dies anymore, there's no more need for procreation, for, for replenishing the human race. So there's no more need for marriage because procreation is a fundamental part of marriage. And then he goes on a minute and he uses the word because, which I'm gonna show you in a minute. But I'll be honest with you, like as a, as a married man who loves my wife, very much. The idea of not being married to Kathy in heaven has not always gotten me all that excited. Like, I'll be honest, you know. I've often thought, heaven, how can heaven be heaven if I'm not married to Kathy McMurray, you know? See what I did there, guys? And I did it on camera too, all right? Just note that. Anyway, <clears throat> okay. When Bridget was a little girl, she would come up to me and she would always ask these really inquisitive theological questions. And one day she was like, daddy, will you and mom be married in heaven? And I'm like, I'm either lying to my child, like about Santa Claus and stuff, or I'm telling her the truth. And I would say, well, no, we won't be married. And she would start crying. And I was like, but Bridget, we'll actually like each other even more in heaven. You know, it's just a different kind of a thing. But here's the point. Jesus is saying, we'll be so much more deeply connected to one another in heaven. And we won't be married because we won't 
we won't be dying, Jesus says. We cannot die. It's stronger than just we won't die. We cannot die because the living God is there. And then look, he says, because. This is the next logic word. Because. Why? Because we will be equal to angels. And even more so. Angels can't die. And we'll be like them. But we will even be greater than angels. We'll be called sons, children of God, sons of the resurrection for all eternity. Those phrases, sons of God, sons of the resurrection, those are not even applied to angels. Jesus is saying, we will, be, we will have a higher status, a greater intimacy with Jesus than even the angels. Astounding for all eternity. And Jesus says, this is beautiful. This is joyful. This is the greatest news you could ever hear. The hope, the hope of the age to come. Yesterday, I had the immense privilege of tuning into the memorial service of Luis Palau. I mean, this was like, and some of you know that name, very famous evangelist. It was the most touching. I mean, it was an amazing service. And over and over and over again, people talked about Luis. He, the reason he could not stop talking about Jesus was because he could not wait to get to heaven and be with Jesus. And it would come out all the time in his conversations. Even when he wasn't preaching, he could not help but talk to people about Jesus and about heaven. And apparently also, Luis, his son, said he had this really disturbing tendency to ask people really personal questions about their life that he should not be asking them. Okay? And so there was all these rumors about him in the last 10 days of his life, he was still doing all this stuff. He was preaching the gospel. And apparently some, when he was up at St. Vincent, a couple of doctors were walking past the nurse's station and there was this nurse just in tears. And one of the doctors walked up and said, are you okay? And she was like, oh my gosh. I just had this conversation with this man in room 838. I mean, she didn't even know who he was, you know? And she was like, he asked me all of these really deep personal questions about my life. And I found myself just spilling my guts to him. And then at the end of the conversation, he just simply said, I don't want to be in heaven without you. I don't want to be in heaven without you. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Let's not talk about what I'm against. Let's talk about what I'm for. I don't want you to miss it. And that's why number four. And let me show you in your own Bible so you, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. Please look at verse 35. He says, how do we get there? We get there because someone counts us worthy. But those who are considered worthy it's passive in the Greek, which means someone else, someone on the outside who actually has the power and the authority and the right to count us worthy. Brothers and sisters, when you, when you hear that, how do I get counted worthy for the new age? Don't think about what you have to do to earn your way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that someone authoritative, divine, and wonderful considers you worthy and how as you put your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again. This is pure gospel. Hallelujah. It's such good news. It's such good news. 
And Jesus says, you're rejecting something. You're making fun of something. And I understand you don't even, under, you don't even understand what you're ridiculing. So let me tell you about it. But then, that's just step one. Step two, Jesus says, I need to expose a basic flaw in your vision of God. Look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now, if you're like me, when you read that, you think, I don't necessarily see the argument for the resurrection here. I mean, I'm sure it's here because this is Jesus, okay? But I'm missing, maybe I'm missing what he's doing. And it's actually quite profound. So let me share with you a couple thoughts. His argument begins with the nature of God. That's, what, that's the problem. He says, your problem is that you've started with a warped vision of God. And so I want to show you who God is. And I'm going to take you to a passage that you totally believe in, the burning bush moment. And here's his argument, okay? Think about this. He says, God is life. He's not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. Because he's the God of life. So these names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we know these names, you're the patriarchs. You realize by the time God said this to Moses, those, those fathers of the faith had been dead for hundreds of years. But God described himself as the, the living God of those three. So the statement, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, must mean there's life beyond the grave, even for those three. Physically, they have fallen asleep, which is the way the Bible describes physical death, where the soul separates from the body, but the soul does not die. There's life beyond the grave. And Jesus knows it, and God knew it when he was speaking to Moses. One commentary I read this week noted that the devout Jews that were there that day hearing this, they all heard in that moment Jesus speaking about the idea of covenant relationship. Okay, think about this. This is why some of them term it, and they basically say, that was really well done, Jesus. It's like props, Jesus, you killed it, okay? Because they're like, you just went to the one thing that proves the resurrection. We serve a God who binds himself to human souls in a covenant relationship and nothing can sever it. Not sin, not Satan, not death. Nothing can separate us from the binding covenantal love of God. Amen. And Jesus knew it. Moses learned. What was the purpose in the burning bush moment? Do you remember what the purpose was? God showed up. Why was he showing up? He was showing up to say to Moses, I need to explain to you why I'm not going to abandon these people who are suffering in Egypt. Why? They're just one people group. There's all kinds of people. So why not just give up on them? Because I made a covenant to them and their fathers and nothing can break my covenant love. Not even death. 
He's the God of the living. Paul said it. You know the verse, Romans 8. Where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. He's the God of the living. And everyone in that moment said, case closed. And they were like, is there anyone else at the DMV ready to take? No one's, no one else. Do you see that? Look at verse 40. No one else asked him any questions. But here's what we're going to discover. Come back next Sunday. This is not the end. In fact, Jesus now is going to switch from defense to offense. And you don't want to miss that. All right. It's about to get good. It's good. But let me close. I'm going to give you um, something practical. Something practical in your time with Christ this week. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you two questions. I'd love for you to take these home. Write them down. Uh, think about them. Pray over them. This is the way we should respond to this teaching. Here's question number one. Am I knowingly rejecting a viewpoint that Jesus holds dear? And don't try to answer that question too quickly, okay? Take some time on that. The Sadducees were rejecting Jesus because they were rejecting a viewpoint that Jesus holds there. I mean, literally, the, the king of the universe says to them, there is a resurrection, all right? So to follow me means to agree with me about that. I can't follow Jesus and at the same time reject a doctrine or a truth or a viewpoint that he really cares about. And for some people, it might not be, maybe for the you, the resurrection is solved. It's good, but maybe there's other things, other ideas, other viewpoints. Sometimes because we're new in faith as Christians, we, we struggle with something. We know, okay, I know Jesus cares about this, but I'm really struggling with it. Okay, that's, you're growing. Keep following Jesus. But sometimes this happens as a way to avoid Jesus. And sometimes it happens because we're way too, in, we're more influenced by Instagram than we are by Jesus or some other thing. And Jesus says, look, to follow me means to begin to, to cast away those views that I disagree with. So am I knowingly rejecting something that Jesus holds dear? How could you know? How could you know? A couple practical things. Talk to somebody that you trust, a pastor, a small group leader, Open your Bible. Don't keep going to the same source that you're going to out there in the world. Go to someone that you know, that, that you trust, that knows the heart of Jesus and say, is this view, how, how, how well does this view square with Jesus? Just be honest with me. Here's question number two. 
am I carrying around a warped picture of the character of God? And can I say something? We all are, okay? This morning, I was like finishing my sermon manuscript and sort of praying over that question. And I realized even in this moment, as I overly worry about what's gonna happen today, I'm carrying around a warped vision of the character of God. Amen? That he's sovereign, that he's good. It's, it's easy in our Christian life even to say, we know, okay, I know this thing about God, but the way I'm living is demonstrating I have a different view of him. Just take that, pray about it this week.